so long as we walk by faith and not by sight, we go swiftly on in the way of holiness, while we steadily look not at the things which are seen, but at those which are not seen. We are more and more crucified to the world and the world crucified to us. Faith in general is the most direct and effectual means of promoting all righteousness and true holiness, of establishing the holy and spiritual law in the hearts of them that believe. A quote from John Wesley's second discourse, The Law Established by Faith. That's our topic today on Wednesdays with Wesley. Hello again, I'm Bob Kaler, your host, pastor of Tri-Lakes United Methodist Church in Monument, Colorado. This is the podcast where we dive deeply into Wesley's sermons and writings and talk about all things classically Methodist. I'm so glad you've joined us. I hope that you are enjoying these series of sermons, and especially the ones that we are doing last week and this week as we look at this particular sermon, actually more like a treatise or a tract that is divided into two parts, the law established through faith. And Wesley's using the same text for both of these discourses, Romans 3.31. Let me read that for you again. Paul says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So we're talking about the relationship between law and faith. And if you recall, in Discourse 1, Wesley laid out the ways that people, and especially preachers, can void the law through faith, negating the necessity of the moral law. And so he thus begins this particular discourse with a review of the three ways that the moral law can be voided. We talked about these last time, but remember, you can void the law by not preaching it at all. Firstly, secondly, by teaching that faith supersedes the necessity of holiness, that faith alone brings a liberty from any kind of degree of obedience, which is really a perversion of the great truth that we are now under a covenant of grace and not works, as if they are mutually exclusive. And then thirdly, we void the law by making the law void in practice, living as if faith was designed to excuse us from holiness and allow us to sin, a concept that Paul, right here in Romans 3, rejects right out of hand and does so again in Romans 6. Now, Wesley does allow, here at the beginning of the sermon, that the ceremonial law has been abolished forever. He talked about that in the first discourse as well. Nor do we establish the whole law of Moses when we're talking about the law, nor do we establish the moral law as a condition of our justification, in which case no one would be justified. In other words, we're not giving the law too much play as though it's something that we follow in order to earn our justification or our salvation. So Wesley's covering all the bases here, saying that obedience to the law doesn't earn justification, but neither does justification by faith negate obedience to the moral law. The law and faith work together in the life of the believer to bring one toward the ultimate goal, which is renewal in the image of Christ. And that brings us to the meat of this second discourse, the ways in which we indeed do establish the law by faith. What Wesley has torn down is negations of the law in the first discourse. He's now going to build up, and in doing so, he offers a more robust biblical doctrine than we often get in certain branches of Christianity. So the first question is, how is the law established? Well, Wesley is going to give us three ways that the law is established, 
and that's the guts of the sermon. The first way that the law is established is, as Wesley puts it, by our doctrine, by preaching the full gospel, the full biblical doctrine of law and faith in every part. This is the fullness of what Jesus taught. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, for example, where Jesus doesn't negate the law, but fulfills it. We establish the law whenever we speak in Jesus' name of everything that he said, keeping back nothing. In other words, we don't construct a gospel that avoids Jesus' call to obedience, his warnings of judgment, his call to sacrificial self-denial. We offer instead the whole counsel of God, the whole of the scriptures. Wesley uses an image here, like sellers of bad wine, we don't water it down or soften Jesus' words to make it suit the taste of the hearers. He says, we then establish the law when we declare every part of it, every commandment contained therein, not only in its full literal sense, but likewise in its spiritual meaning, not only with regard to outward actions, which it either forbids or enjoins, but also with respect to the inward principle, to the thoughts, desires, intents, and intents of the heart. This is really reminiscent of Jesus' own teaching. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, particularly there in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus has a rapid-fire series of things that he brings up from the law of Moses, but then he, in effect, intensifies them with that repeated pattern. You have heard that it was said in the law, but I say to you, and then he, in a way, intensifies that law. So Jesus reiterates laws about murder, adultery, divorce, swearing oaths. But he also got to the inward principle behind them, the attitudes that lead to the actions of sin. So Wesley's saying here that we have to preach not just the thou shalt nots of the law, but also the dispositions of the heart that lie behind our disobedience. It's one thing to say, you shall not murder. It's fairly easy, most of the time, I think, to avoid doing murder, the outward action of murder. What's much more difficult is to recognize what Jesus says about the anger that is, in effect, the same thing, that that attitude of the heart is, in effect, equal to the outward action. That's an intensification of the law, and it gets at the inward and outward principle of the law itself. And Wesley says we have to understand this diligently because these things are so little understood by the rest of the world. He gives the example of the heathen, for example, from whom the mystery of the law was hidden, clouded by their own philosophical wisdom. With all their boasted wisdom, he says, they neither found out God nor the law of God, not in the letter, much less in the spirit of it. But Wesley also points out that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day, who were supposed to be experts in the law, didn't really understand it either. Jesus' encounters with the experts in the law were always exposing their ignorance or hypocrisy in relationship to that very law. They didn't understand the spiritual meaning behind it. And so Wesley says that they essentially believed that if they only sinned in their hearts, but it didn't translate into outward actions, that they weren't really sinning. Well, Jesus certainly disavows them of that notion. Again, anger is the same as murder. Lust is the same as adultery. But perhaps most troubling for Wesley is the fact that there are many in the Christian world who don't get this relationship between the inward and outward nature of the law. 
The spiritual sense of the commandments of God is still a mystery to these also, he says. He mentions the Roman Catholic darkness and ignorance that he believed was spread across much of the world in his day. But even more, he points to so-called Reformed Christians who are utter strangers to the law of Christ, he says, and the purity and spirituality of it. Now, here we can only imagine or surmise that Wesley sees the pendulum swinging too far in one direction or another. From the Catholic side, he may be referring to the emphasis on ritual law, while on the Reform side, the idea of sola fide, faith alone, when taken to its extreme, can push the boundaries of faith and exclude the need for obedience. So Wesley here is looking for a balance grounded in Jesus himself, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, people who have the form of religion but not the power, people who are righteous in their own eyes and are deeply offended when we speak of the religion of the heart. But offended they must be, Wesley says, because we cannot but speak the truth as it is in Jesus. It's up to us to deliver the full gospel, to deliver our own soul. All that is written in the book of God we are to declare, says Wesley, not as pleasing men, but the Lord. We are to declare not only the promises, but all the threatenings too, which we find therein. We teach all that Jesus commanded and teach the full witness of Scripture for the awakening of those that sleep, for instructing the ignorant, comforting the feeble-minded, or building up and perfecting the saints. And to close this section, Wesley quotes from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. I'll read this from the NRSV. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient equipped for every good work. I think Wesley's laying down here the real doctrine of scriptural authority, that it is given so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. You can argue all you want about biblical authority and what it means, but unless it translates into action, it's not that authoritative in your life. In summary, the doctrine that establishes the law by faith is to preach everything that Christ has revealed, to preach Christ in all of his offices, prophet, priest, and king, and to do so until he hath utterly cast out all sin and brought in everlasting righteousness. In other words, we're going to keep doing this until Christ returns. We're going to keep preaching the whole of the gospel, and not only preaching it, but later on in the sermon he's going to say we have to live it as well. But in this way, first, the law is established by our doctrine. The second way the law is established is by preaching the truth that faith in Christ does not supersede the need for holiness, but that faith actually produces holiness of heart and life. Now, this is a very interesting section, and I found it very profound as I was going through this sermon again. Here, Wesley's going to talk about the nature of faith but also perhaps more importantly, the limitations of faith. Very excellent things are spoken of faith, he says. But I would add, and I think this is his point, it's not the ultimate goal. Faith is not the goal. The main limitation is that faith itself, even Christian faith, is still, as Wesley puts it, only the handmaid of love. So as glorious as as it is, as important as faith is, it is not the end of the commandment of Christ. That's not the goal. 
What did Jesus say the greatest commandment was? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the goal. So love is the end, says Wesley, or we would say the goal of all the commandments of God. Love is the end, the sole end of every dispensation from God, from the beginning of the world to the consummation of all things. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, love alone never fails. These three abide faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is not faith, but love. Indeed, Wesley says faith will fail. It will one day be swallowed up in sight. We won't need faith at some point because we will one day see Jesus. We will see God face to face. And as love exists after faith, it'll still be there. Love will still be there even after faith is no longer necessary. So Wesley says love existed before there was faith. The angels before creation had no need for faith, being in God's presence from the beginning. Adam, before he rebelled, walked with God in the garden by sight, not by faith. Faith is only necessary when there is no sight. So in that sense, then, faith itself presupposes the presence of sin. Wesley makes the argument here that without sin, there was no need for atonement and thus no need for faith. It was only when love was lost by sin, he says, that faith was added, not for its own sake, nor with, nor with any design that it should exist any longer than until it had answered the end for which it was ordained, namely to restore man to the love from which he had fallen. It was the fall, says Wesley, that required evidence, that required faith as evidence of things unseen and faith in the promise that one day the woman's seed would crush the serpent's head. Faith then was originally designed of God to reestablish the law of love, says Wesley. Faith is the means to a greater end. It's not the end itself, but it's the means to the larger end of restoring that holy love wherein man was originally created. In this way, faith thus establishes anew the law of love in our hearts, and that's what makes faith so valuable. It's necessary, but it's a means. The end is always love, restoration, renewal. Let me editorialize here a little bit. This is a powerful antidote, I think, to what a lot of evangelical Protestantism wants to do with the idea of faith. Oftentimes when people talk about faith, what they mean by that is either an intellectual assent to a series of doctrinal propositions designed to get people into heaven, or on the other side, it's a nebulous hope that things will eventually turn out okay. Now, it's not that those things are wrong in and of themselves. It's just that they're incomplete. Faith is actually the means to a greater end. That end is not just eternal destiny, it's not just pie-in-the-sky hope, but rather the purpose of faith is to produce the love of Christ in us, renewing us in his image. Faith itself that doesn't produce this kind of love isn't authentic faith. If faith doesn't change us, if it doesn't produce in us what we say in the prayer of confession, I love that line in the prayer of confession where we say, free us for joyful obedience. If faith doesn't produce in us joyful obedience to all that Christ commands, if it doesn't shape us into the people we were created to be, 
and Wesley would argue, and I think he's right about this, it really isn't faith. And that brings us to the third way that the law is established, and that is that it must be established in our hearts and lives. It's not just a doctrinal thing. It's not just an idea, but rather it has to be lived out in our daily lives, inwardly and outwardly. Indeed, Wesley says, without this kind of transformation, what would all the rest avail? We can establish the law by our doctrine. We can preach the need for holiness. But unless that law of love is established in our hearts, Wesley says it would only increase our damnation. Wesley sees this as the main point. How do we establish the law in our own hearts? Well, interestingly, how do you do that? It's done by faith. In other words, Wesley is looping back here to his previous point and thus making his closing argument, this interconnectivity between law and faith. If the law is to be established in us, if it is to produce obedience, to produce holy love of God and neighbor, then it does so through the means that we now have at our disposal, the means of faith. For so long as we walk by faith and not by sight, says Wesley, referring to our current condition, we go swiftly on in the way of holiness, while we steadily look not at the things which are seen, but at those which are not seen. We are more and more crucified to the world and the world crucified to us. Faith in general is the most direct and effectual means of promoting all righteousness and true holiness, of establishing the holy and spiritual law in the hearts of them that believe. This faith is confidence in a pardoning God. Nothing enables us like a piercing conviction of this to give our hearts to him who was given for us. And from that principle of grateful love arises love for our neighbor. This is the whole fulfilling of the law, as Jesus said. Such faith doesn't just cause us to avoid evil, it drives us to do good for all people. This is the fulfilling of both the positive and negative law of God. So it's not just about external obedience, but it also works inwardly. This is love purifying the heart. So Wesley says, let us endeavor to establish the law in ourselves, not sinning because we are under grace, but rather using all the power we receive thereby to fulfill all righteousness. He closes with this admonition. Now, use all the knowledge and love and life and power you have already attained. So shall you continually go on from faith to faith. So shall you daily increase in holy love till faith is swallowed up in sight and the law of love established to all eternity. So again, Wesley is giving us this idea that faith and love work together. Faith and the law, obedience. Remember, God's love language is obedience. And we obey not out of some sense of obligation, not out of some sense of wanting to earn God's love or favor, Our obedience is a response to what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We love because he first loved us. Our obedience demonstrates our faith. It demonstrates that God is at work in us to make all things new. I love this discourse because to me it indicates the real strength of Wesleyan theology. And that is that faith is leading somewhere. When faith is working, 
It is producing real Christ-like love for God and neighbor in both one's inward attitudes and outward actions. It's the integration of faith and works that James wrote about. They're intertwined. Faith and works. Show me faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. Unlike some Protestant traditions that want to separate faith and law, Wesley takes seriously the teaching of Jesus and the full witness of Scripture. Faith isn't just a nebulous concept, but it's a robust producer of Christ-like character. It has a purpose. It establishes the law in us, and it enables us to live in joyful obedience to God who created us for his purposes. When you read these two discourses together, you get a real sense of the fullness of Wesley's understanding of the relationship between law and faith, between law and grace, between works and faith, all those things wrapped together. It's one of the great strengths, I think, of Wesleyan theology. And it's not necessarily just balance, it's about wholeness, that we were created for a purpose. And the purpose wasn't simply to go to heaven when we die, but rather that God wants to work heaven in us and bring us to being the people we were created to be from the very beginning, people in the image of God, people in the image of Christ. Well, that's a quick look at this second discourse on the law established by faith. As always, if you have questions, feel free to pass those along. You can email me at pastorbk at tlumc.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at WCAPod. Wherever you're listening to this, I hope you'll leave a review. It'll help drive other people to the site. Share this around. There are a lot of Methodists who are rediscovering the sermons of John Wesley Hopefully this is a great way to do that and provide some accessibility to these great works of Christian theology. We'll see you next time here on Wednesdays with Wesley.